Hi friends, this is Diane at the Sailing Legends podcast where we focus on the legacy, lore, and lessons of the sea. And I have a wonderful, talented woman with me. I drove a couple hours to her home to interview her because I wanted to spend time with her because she's very, very important to me. Jean Grossman now, used to be Jean Levine. When I met her, she was Jean Levine. And she called me and wanted me to steer a boat with her in a women's race. And we didn't know each other. And I said, sure, who's going to be on the boat? And she told me. And I said, okay, I'll go with you. You know, whatever. I just kind of didn't think much of it. And she goes, oh, we went down to the boat. She goes, oh, by the way, my boyfriend's going to come and do a little coaching and training. I said, cool. And then I look up. And across the yard comes my good friend, Jeff Grossman, from college that I hadn't seen in years. And I couldn't believe it. And so that reconnected me with Jeff. And then I got to know Jean, who's like stellar. And at the time in my sailing career, I was kind of feeling down on women in sailing because most of them didn't know what they were doing and they could pass beer and that was it. There was no sailing women. And when I met Jean, she sailed and she knew what she was doing. So I was delighted to meet her then and I'm delighted to call her one of my very good friends for many, many, many years. So welcome to the show, Jean. Thank you. I'm so happy that we get to do this and we could talk forever. So you guys might want to get tea and sit back because this could be a while. Anyway, so let's start at the beginning. How did you learn how to sail? What, tell us about the story of learning to sail and what it was like. Did you love it? Did you hate it? Were you racing? What was, what was it? I have to think back till my childhood because I think I was 12 and we were at the shopping mall. My, I was with my father and my mother and she was off in some department store and they were having a little boat show in the mall. And my dad walked over to this little yellow sailboat put on by backyard boats and said, gee, that looks like a lot of fun. Let's buy one of those. We'll take it home and we'll sail it in the lake. I said, sounds great to me. Hey, I'm 12. That's awesome. So we carried this boat out of the shopping mall and my father was was just like elbowing me thinking that is like the funniest thing you know nobody asked me for a receipt we probably could have just picked this thing up and carried it out uh, but they did ask me for the receipt when I went back for the paddle <laughs> anyway we wound up launching that boat first in the living room and then reading the book of course on sailing and carrying it down to Lake Anne I grew up in Reston Virginia uh, a suburb of Washington DC and we had Lake Anne. So the big thing was the having a house on the lake, you gotta have a boat of some kind. No motorized boats were allowed on this lake. So it was only canoes and sailboats. So my first adventure was going out with my father on this essentially glorified beer cooler with a stick and a sail. And because my father really didn't know what he was doing at all, there was a lot of yelling and screaming going on because when he didn't know what to do, he just yelled louder. So that was very interesting, but eventually I was granted, anointed captain of the vessel and I was allowed to take the little sailboat out by myself. And so I could take myself and my girlfriend out on this boat. And we learned how to sail well enough that the boys chasing us in the canoe had to work really hard. Nice. to catch up to us. Awesome. So I consider that like 
a big accomplishment that I could actually really sail this sucker and beat somebody paddling after me in this thing that was basically a yellow beer cooler with a stick and a sail. <laughs> so that's kind of my, my first memories of sailing uh, as a kid. And then we wound up getting a larger boat, uh, Catalina 27, that we kept at the Annapolis Yacht Club. Wow, Annapolis Yacht Club, that's got a lot of history there. Oh yeah. I think I was at the very first Annapolis boat show, in which case I told my father, I think a 40-foot sailboat was the largest boat at that time. And I got on the boat and I said, gee, Dad, I could live on one of these. I really love this boat. You should buy it. He said, that would be great. Why don't you buy it after you go to college and get a really good job? <laughs> you can buy the boat and live on it. But it's funny now looking back, you know, 50 years of the Annapolis Boat Show. And I was at the first one, and I have lived my dream that I told my dad I was going to do when I was 14 years old. <laughs> so here you are at, as a teenager at this boat show, seeing this big boat and going, I want to live on one of these. And your dad's kind of being facetious, go get a job, blah, blah, blah. And there is something within you that awakened that resonated to the point where that dream definitely manifested in your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Once I made it happen, it was just, um, my dad turned out to be really proud of me when I came home and I showed him my captain's license that I actually had become a yacht captain, a licensed master. You're a merchant marine now, U.S. captain. So. Uh, that was uh, one of those pivotal moments, being able to really feel like my dad was proud of me. Um, right. I don't know. I guess we all sort of aspire to that, depending on your relationship with your parents. Right, and especially being the daughter, right? Yes. So I met you in Florida, So, and you're talking about Virginia. So how did you, was there any sailing between Virginia and Florida? And then how did you get to Florida? Like, what's up with that? Absolutely. So the piece you were missing before Mr. Grossman came along, um, there were many other little sailing adventures. Uh, I think the thing that made me want to move to Florida and become a captain was after my first marriage I got divorced and I had a life-changing event, essentially. Totally wanted to change my life. My sister said, hey, I'm going on this gaff rig schooner up in Maine. You want to come on this trip with me? I said, sure. So I wound up sailing this 80-foot gaff rig schooner, and the crew really took to me, and they said, hey, you wanna stay? And I, I was divorced, I didn't have any other reason to not stay, so I said, sure. So I essentially signed on as cook's mate on this 80-foot gaff rig schooner that was so primitive, we had a wood stove on the boat and barrels of water on deck. There was no engine. We had a, a gas generator that somebody had to run in order to run the bilge pump because, oh, did I mention there was a big hole in the bottom of the boat? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Real wooden ship. And somebody had to man that pump 24 hours a day while we were taking paying customers for a week-long sailing adventure. But that really, spending that summer on that gaff rig schooner, even so primitive, sleeping out under the stars on deck, 
<laughs> stoking the wood stove, rowing our passengers to shore to do the clam bake and the uh, lobster uh, steam was just something that that made me want to become a captain and do this full time. So I said, Maine is too cold. So where can I go where it's warmer? Florida would be good. <laughs> so I came to Florida. Um, before really settling in Florida, I had taken off for the Caribbean on several different occasions, um, hooking up with various captains that were looking for a mate to sail with without much luck of finding the right captain that matched my personality for uh, staying with, shall we say. Yes. So when I moved to Florida, that's when I wound up, uh, had a little sunfish that I dragged out to Dunedin Causeway and went sailing. And I had seen a poster up for Woman's Regatta Bikini Cup. And so I called the number, said, gee, I'd like to get involved in this bikini cup thing. And a woman named Ellen Henderson said, oh, I'm the matchmaker. And she hooked me up. She said, oh, well, you have sailing experience, so we'll put you on one of the boats um, so you can be the captain. I thought, well, that's interesting because I've really only been captain of like a sunfish. And now I'm going to sail, a, I think it was the Centurion 36. And my crew... Like, they didn't want to tack because we might spill the wine and cheese and crackers. So I thought, I'm going to need more practice. If I'm supposed to be the captain, my crew doesn't know what they're doing. And <laughs> yikes. So I said, who, who practices more? And that's when uh, Alan connected me with my now husband, Jeff Grossman, that you can go out with his girls. So I went sailing and... Jeff was an excellent coach, and I got to be with other women who knew how to sail and start to bring my experience level up from just being the one driving the boat and uh, worrying about spilling cheese and crackers <laughs> to actually sailing and developing my skills more as a sailor. So at that time frame, which was a few years ago, did you notice, I mean, what was the difference between the people who are, the women especially, who were so interested in the cheese and crackers and they didn't want to tack, I've been on boats like that before, and the women who like really wanted to sail and race, and like they were serious sailors or becoming serious sailors and interested in it. Did you notice a, a difference in the mentality of those two groups? It was an openness to learning mm. where, uh, because of Jeff's skill at giving instruction, I think it encouraged women to ask questions and to hands-on learn. Where I think the other ladies I was sailing with had always been like guests on a boat and never asked to actually do anything. Mm -hmm. So it, it wasn't in their nature to ask questions or be instructed as to what to do. Uh, that's been an interesting evolution over the time. I think um, I had gotten my captain's license and uh, moving forward in time once I started racing with my husband and working with the other women, 
realizing that I was actually coaching other women on what to do. And that difference in having a woman's voice and also having a woman who wasn't going to cut in front of the crew to do a job. When you ask somebody to do something, even if it takes them 10 seconds longer to do it, you have to let them do it. They don't touch it with their own hands. It mm -hmm. doesn't go into the memory bank. <laughs> you know, didn't happen. So that uh, evolution of becoming a teacher and a mentor as well and watching how people learn differently. You know, some people you need to tell them what to do. Some people need to be shown what to do. Some people can take being told, then they can do it, and then they instinctively know the next time right mm -hmm. away to do it. But it's kind of following that path of learning. Oh, that's amazing. So when you think back on all of your different racing, because you've raced lots of different boats and over a long period of time, and you think kind of like you span back, like if we could just play the movie forward. What is a lesson that you learned that still sticks with you today? Like you can recall it maybe when you're mentoring or teaching people now in your current position or that you look back and go, oh, that was a good one. So there are many times when people never knew how nervous I was before I was going to be the captain of the boat for the race. Oh. I would go and throw up before the race. I was so nervous. And I would get out there and then after we started the race and we were just in it, the, that fear factor kind of drifted into the background and you're just focused on keeping the team working together moving forward. And that, you know what, if it takes an extra 10 seconds, but I don't destroy somebody's confidence by letting them do it, it was worth it. Mm -hmm. It was worth it. And I'll still never forget the one race I lost by three seconds because my girlfriend was supposed to punch the coordinates of the committee boat in the GPS when we were crossing the line. And she didn't, and of course the length of the race was such that you couldn't just see the finish line. So when we got to the last mark, we were in the lead, and we didn't know which way to go because we didn't have the coordinates of where the finish was. Oh, no. <laughs> and uh, Jeff, my husband, was actually on the committee, the finish boat, and they had to actually measure out the course because... It was so close in time between our arch competitor that that three seconds, they had to actually measure the course back out to do the calculation on that. So to correct the make time. make sure you know yeah. the whole race course in case you get in front. <laughs> There's the lesson. <laughs> That's the lesson. Be ready to be the leader because when you are, you better know where you're going. When you first start that learning of racing, you're like following the pack. And then all of a sudden, when you break through and you're in front, like, oh, where are we going? <laughs> I'm not following anybody anymore. Now that I'm the leader, <laughs> well, I guess I better know where I'm going. <laughs> yes, very good job, right? So when, when you're racing, 
and we know that you're a captain and you're really good at, at, at the helm and you're good at teaching people and stuff. But when you were racing in that era of your life, what was your favorite thing to do on the boat? I think I liked foredeck. I really did like foredeck. I often was in the pit, which made me really good in the pit because I had done all of the jobs on the boat. And that probably evolved from sailing with that yelling captain mm-hmm. that chased everybody off the boat. I could stick it out because I grew up with my father yelling. So I knew he wasn't actually yelling at me like, hey, you idiot. It was like, hey, and he would list off like 10 things to do, one right after the other in rapid fire succession. And if you could keep up with the mental flow, um, you learned a lot more. Yep. So once I got on the foredeck, it was a thinking job. So it's not just oh, we're taking down sales and putting up sales. You had to be ahead of the game. And it really sunk in when I was actually watching an America's Cup race. And it was back when they had the, the, um, the captain and the tactician mic'd. And so I'm listening in on the cockpit mic, and it's, well, you think it's gonna be a dip-pull jibe? And they were discussing whether they were gonna do it a dip or gonna be a jibe set the foredeck was already doing it and I just thought oh yeah the foredeck has to definitely be ahead because there's no way they're waiting for the helm or the tactician to tell them what to do you better be on top of it so you know whether it's gonna be a jibe set or not (laughs) so I like that the thinking aspect of it Um, and being out there as we say catching arrows because you, you're out in front. Yes, and the neat thing about foredeck is it's, it's the most dangerous position on the boat. It takes a lot of agility and strength, but it also takes a good mind. And it's very hard to find really talented, great foredeck people who can think ahead, like you're, like you're saying. I've raced on many, many boats where the foredeck people could orchestrate the move once you told them what the move was, but by then it was a little late, or they were always like a step behind. And, and you're just reminding me of when I sailed on a Swan 48 in Key West Race Week, and our Fordak guy, no matter what we said to do, he would go foul, foul, like the lines were always fouled. Never did we round a mark clean. And by the end of five days of racing, my brother, who was a tactician, I was the crew manager, my brother was, every time he'd say an order, he'd go foul under his breath because he knew that's what he was going to hear. So having a Fordak person like you on the boat who could actually think and enjoy it and knew what was going on must have been just dreamy wonderful for anybody steering the boat because it's vital to have that connection well and you got to have a good pit person because they're on the other end of the line yes because <laughs> you know? i've watched watched numerous times where it all went sideways because somebody didn't quite get the halyard all the way up before somebody trimmed the sheet on the chute and then it was all loaded up and now yikes right can't get it up that extra foot <laughs> Yeah, and that's the whole value of it being a team sport and where everybody really has to work together and understand what they're affecting. That, you know, you might be pulling on a line or letting a line go or adjusting something, and that's not all there is to it. There's something on the other end, there's things happening around, and it can get really, really chaotic. So do you, can you remember any experience that you had where it was chaotic to the point where there was a part of you that was a little afraid? 
I think there was maybe once where we were racing after we had gotten the Sky 51. So we can fly five sails on this boat. That requires at least five crew members that know what the heck they're doing. I can coach, we usually would have 10. Um, 12 would be a more nominal crew for a boat of that size because of how many lines. You need four people to do the four deck. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's 12 lines to handle. And so each person having their own position and knowing what the other person on the other end of that line needs from them to do. And we had one instance where um, I had one sail combination in mind and my helmsman, uh, Jeff, <laughs> had a different sail combination in mind and we hadn't negotiated what exactly we were going to put up and it was one of those where they probably should have called the race but the sailmaker said oh yeah we can all go out there so it was 25 knots from the northwest in the gulf and um, it was going to be a downwind start so I had a certain mindset for what sails to fly and Jeff had a different mindset so Jeff of course, being the captain, we went with his plan. So as soon as we hoisted that mainsail and the wind really hit it, it blew out the luff of the main because the wind forces were so strong. And the mainsail came down like a spinnaker, just falling down slowly <laughs> off the side of the boat. And it was all we could do to wrestle that sail back on deck before it got wet and moving fast enough and at that point I only had five experienced people and as the first time ever I said if you're experienced and you're used to position on the boat get in your position if you're not get up there under the dodger and it was like the whole crew went and hid under the dodger because the conditions were so rough that it was going to be a, a scary trip. And it was shortly after that that we decided to bail out of the race and go back in. Which means you guys had better judgment than the race committee and all the people who ran it. Because 25 knots of breeze out of the northwest on the, in the Gulf in Florida, for those of you who are listening who don't know, means really nice seas. And in other words, it was probably, what, 10, 12-foot seas or something close to that. And even on a 51-foot boat, the water's pretty shallow, and it's relatively in the Gulf compared to other areas, and that means that was a rough ride, even for them. And to blow out a sail... Before we got to the start, yep, that, three boats got dismasted. Yes, I remember that race. And... It was crazy. So there are moments where, you you know, today, in today's world, sometimes there's a little bit more hesitation on the race committee's part because in older days it was like, everybody go, it doesn't matter. You're not, you're not great if you don't go. You know, we've gone out in many dangerous conditions. Back then it was cool. Today it's, you know, bad stewardship of the boat and destroying things and nobody wants to get hurt. So yeah, that would be a scary moment. And I could see you with your eyes really big Everybody under the Dodger if you don't know what you're doing because that keeps them safe. Yes. And it keeps you guys, the knowledgeable people, safe too because when it's dangerous like that, lack of experience can accidentally cause a much bigger problem. And so that was a really smart move on your part. 
Yep, that was one of those races. I always say, you know, it's good to actually go out and race in those type of conditions when you're close to home to give you the heavy weather experience, but that was probably pushing the realm there where, you know, five knots less would have made a big difference in going out and doing it. It made it so later on in bigger seas and wind conditions when I was alone with my husband on the boat and there wasn't 12 people on the boat that I know what to do. And I feel confident in my decision making when we're at sea in bigger conditions because of all those crazy racing experiences. <laughs> well, and that's a good point because it builds a great foundation. Like, you know, somebody who wants to learn and think and understand it can take those crazy lessons and extrapolate them into the rest of your sailing career because you're still very actively sailing and will sail forever. And so those things build forward. And so we've already interviewed your husband and he talked about the Isla Mujeres race on Polyphonic, your Sky 51, which was such a sweet boat. And I would like to hear a little bit from you about what were the highlights of that race f for you? I think driving the boat at 12 knots with all five sails flying was one of the major highs for me driving that boat. We, we researched the Gulf Stream for three months before the race, um, looking at the sea surface temperatures and calculating what course and virtually we had plotted out all the GPS coordinates to go down to Cuba and across the traditional route. And the night before the race, we both looked at the weather router and went, you know what, I think we should go west instead. And in doing that, having that um, where it just clicked off, you couldn't have picked better tactics because we went west uh, why the wind was northerly and then the wind continued to clock so as we turned south the wind came east so we were just reaching the whole way and never got in the Gulf Stream and we able to fly five sails and finally piped up enough where we dropped the main and uh, we were under jib and mizzen at one point during the race uh, still doing 11 knots, um, all reefed down, if you will. And then part of the fun was um, Jeff coming up going, ah, we should get that mainsail back up, because, you know, it's a race. And all the girls on the boat, we had all decided to take a shower. So we were like, in a minute, first we're going to shower, and, and then we'll put the sail back up. <laughs> and when we crossed the finish line, I'm pretty sure the Mexican Navy thought we were muy loco because we came in to Isla Mujeres looking into the anchorage and just seeing those, the three big, you know, 60, 70, 80 footers out there and nobody else. And we were singing, does anybody know the words to La Bamba? I do not know. We were singing and playing guitar and um, shaking the tambourines dancing around the deck of the boat as we cross the finish line. Nice! That is true cruising. Yes! <laughs> we might have been racing, but we were in a true cruising boat and we showed it. <laughs> 
are in a true cruising boat, racing, beating the other racing boats and everyone else, singing as you cross the finish line after a 500 mile race. It was awesome. We arrived showered and ready to go pot tea. <laughs> now, now we're talking. That's the way to do it. See, I'm telling you, it's like perfect. It's perfect. Well, that's why we couldn't do it again. Because when you have a perfect race like that, you just have to leave it at that. You don't, you don't want to like do it over again because you just couldn't match that perfection of the way the boat handled. And not only that, but when we sailed back to our home slip in Clearwater, both Jeff and I were thinking to ourselves, everything's still working. So the whole boat, we sailed over there. We had just installed three air conditioners, a water maker. So we had all this new equipment on the boat. And I'd been busting my butt making sure that all of the floorboards were screwed down. So if we had a 360 rollover, the boat's all secured and all this work. And, you know, it's an effort to keep everything working on the boat. So racing the boat all the way there and getting all the way back without breaking anything, that was like a major accomplishment. That's a huge accomplishment, you know, because some people have a hard time getting one way without breaking something. And then you went over there and back and didn't break anything. And it's 500 miles each way. Exactly. And that's how we knew the boat was shook down and ready to go cruising. Well, that's a good test for it. You know, that's a good way to know that. And then shortly after that, you all took off. And I remember when you guys were taking off and I'm like, oh man, I want to go with them. And, and then it was that combination of that's the coolest thing anybody I know is, has ever done. And, but I want to go with them. Like, you know, I had all these emotions about, and then, but I, we're not going to get to see them for a while, you know, like all of those things. And so on that adventure, when you and Jeff had the boat through all these really cool going down through all the Caribbean and all the islands and everything, was there any time that the two of you looked at each other and said like, what are we doing? Like almost like you wanted to give up or go home or stop. No, I never, I never felt that way at all. There was one, one of the roughest night passages between the Turks and Caicos and the Dominican Republic mm -hmm. where, um, Hey, we're a cutter rig catch and we had a very deep draft and we didn't trust that we could go across the Caicos bank. So we went around to the south end of Caicos Bank and anchored off of a little key down there that put us just at the wrong angle to make it to Lupron, which is where all the cruisers went. So we couldn't quite point it. And we finally said, you know, this is stupid in the middle of the night trying to, you know, point this destination. So we fell off a little bit and that put us in uh, to Manzanillo, which is the border of the Dominican Republic and Haiti. Uh, so which is you know a little far west of where we really wanted to end up but we had seas breaking over the boat and it totally looked like a movie set where the wind it was pretty consistent 38 to 40 knots and um, we were flying the mizzen and the staysail um, because we had a great combination uh, with the boat we could fly various combinations so with without having to go on deck once we took the main down you had lots of sail combinations you could control right from the helm and um, Jeff was below and I was on watch and the boat would go down in a wave and water was shooting up the stanchions like fountains 
uh, because there was water washing a wash on the side deck of the boat. We were, you know, heeled over pretty good. And um, we had this foam <laughs> spray just blowing across the boat. And Jeff throws this cushion out from below. And I'm like, what? What do you want me to do with that now? <laughs> you know? <laughs> the cat had been scared and peed on the cushion. So he was like just ejecting it from below. <laughs> I'm like, thanks. Um, but you know what encouraged me was just, I think it's only 100 miles and we'll be there in the morning. So whatever, just keep on going. We'll be there in the morning and this will all be over. It's only one night. And that's kind of what kept me going through the night on watch alone in this condition. And um, sure enough, you know, next day it was fine. And it wasn't any like predicted horrible weather. There was no tropical depression or anything. It was just blowing like stink. Wow, that's really cool. So that's probably one of the worst nights. And then it kind of made me worried about that passage again. And then the next time we did it, it was like smooth water motorboat ride because we had picked the weather window better. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh, all right, <laughs> no problem. Right, so you just bring, you bring up a neat point, and I want to bring this, have you talk about this very quickly, and then we'll move on, but picking the weather window. And that there's a lot of preparation that goes into cruising and racing off the water and while you're on the water and you mentioned it when you're talking about the Isla Mujeres race how you all studied the Gulf Stream for three months in advance and then even up to the night before the race checking and making sure that what you had been studying really was looking the same or had shifted and in this case it shifted and it paid off big and so talk a little bit about that whole idea of preparing for things before we get there. Like, how did you pick the weather window? Do you do it the night before? And, and what's the value in proper planning, preventing poor performance? It's all about the planning. It really is. And I always repeat myself when I say, you make the plan A, and then you make a plan B and a plan C, maybe even a plan D, depending on where you're going. And then the weather, is like music. If you just hear one note, you can't name that tune. You need to listen to a string of notes for you to get a sense of what the tune is. So the weather's the same way. You need to watch the weather every day and then before your trip, as you're focusing in, you can do about five days out. Three days out, you have an even better idea of what the weather is gonna be like so that you can plan a passage. Anything less than three days, you can pretty much pick a very selective window to make a passage. If it's gonna be longer than three days and you better pretty much be ready for anything. But um, anything short of three days. So consequently, I've now learned a method of essentially taking people all the way to Grenada from the East Coast of the United States where every passage is less than three days, so you can be very selective about when you go and you have a wonderful trip. Oh, that's beautiful. And so now, currently, you and your husband own Toucan Sail, and the two of you 
do this really cool training, yacht brokerage, teaching, all kinds of amazing things. What's your favorite part about Toucan Sale? I think my favorite part is actually the connections that we've made with all of our couples that we've nurtured from taking a seminar with us to sending them off to now take their basic sailing classes, um, maybe teaching them their basic sailing classes, and then helping them get settled, finding their dream boat, helping them get settled on their boat, and then staying in touch with everyone. We just um, did two weeks in Antigua mm -hmm. where we were trying out test sailing new models of boats because we also write reviews for magazines on new models of boats. So we had done two weeks, one week on one model, one week on another model in Antigua, one of my favorite islands in the Caribbean. And there we had um, four of our other Toucan sailors anchored out on their boats. So we got to introduce our couples who were sailing with us on our test sails to try these boats out to our next generation just ahead of them, uh, six months, a year, two years ahead of the people that we were now sailing with. And that was just so rewarding and it just extends our family out to um, hundreds of sailors worldwide. We have trouble going to any port and not knowing somebody. Oh, I love that. That's really amazing. And so you will hear more about Toucan Sale from Jeff and Jean together. And you've heard Jeff on his interview all about his sailing experience. Well, not all about. And Jean about her highlights too. There, to be comprehensive for either of these two people, it would be hours and hours and hours because they're skilled and knowledgeable and have vast experience, as I'm sure you can tell. So check out Toucan Sale. I will put links to following Jean in the show notes. So check her out and follow her around the world because you really never know where she's going to be next, which is really kind of fun. Maybe we should play Where's Jean, like the Where's Waldo game. That could work. Um, yeah, I think, I think I'm going to do that. Anyway, so thank you very much, Jean, for being on the show. Is there anything that you thought I was going to ask or that you wanted to say that I didn't bring up? just maybe a big thank you for marrying us it's something a memory that I have that I'll just never forget is um, getting married on polyphonic at our yacht club and having you and our other friends all gathered around uh, to participate in our event which was long coming because after sailing together for, I think, seven years, everybody said, what took you so long? <laughs> so thank you. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. Now I have tears in my eyes. I remember that day like it was yesterday. It was beautiful, and I'm so honored to have been the officiant of yours and Jeff's wedding on the bow of Polyphonic at the Yacht Club, signal flags and all. It was just a stellar day. <laughs> so you've been listening to Jean Grossman, who is an amazing sailor and a licensed captain and the partner in Two Can Sail with her great husband. So on the next show, you will get to hear from both of them together about their business, about their sailing adventures, having created this unique model for sailing and whatever other cool thing we feel like talking about. So again, Jean, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Well, everybody, 
as I said, you're going to hear on the next episode from the two of them together. And it will be really, really exciting to hear from Jeff and Jean together on the same interview about their adventures on the water. So until the next episode of the Sailing Legends podcast, may you have fair winds and following seas. Be well.